everybody, and welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix. This week on our panel, we have Sasha Wolf. Hey, Adi. I'm always afraid to say your name, Adi. It's Adi Iyengar. Iyengar. You get there. <laughs> hey. Alan Wyma. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv. And this week, we have a special guest, and that is Everett Griffiths. Everett, do you want to hi, just hi. Uh, let people know who you are and why you're important? <laughs> well, my name is Everett. I am a developer of some 20 years at this point. I've focused on back-end technologies and uh, done some stints in the classroom as an educator. And thanks for having me on. Yeah, no problem. When I went freelance, I was still only a few years into my development career. My first contract, I was paid 60 bucks an hour. Due to feedback from my friends, I raised it to 120 bucks an hour on the next contract. And due to the podcasts I was involved in and the screencasts I had made in the past, I started getting calls from people I'd never even heard of who wanted me to do development work for them because I had done that kind of work or talked about or demonstrated that kind of work in the videos and podcasts that I was making. Within a year, I was able to more than double my freelancing rates and I had more work than I could handle. If you're thinking about freelancing or have a profitable but not busy or fulfilling freelance practice, let me show you how to do it in my Dev Heroes Accelerator. Dev Heroes aren't just people who devs admire, they're also people who deliver for clients who know, like, and trust them. Let me help you double your income and fill your slowdowns. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. Now, we brought you on to talk about this .env thing that you made. Do you want to kind of give us a little bit of backstory on this? What it is and what problem you're trying to solve? Yeah, so I am passionate about Elixir and I've really enjoyed working with it for the past couple of years when I discovered it, when I was introduced to it. But one of the things that has consistently been a bit of a snag or just like a little gotcha has been the configuration layer. So mm -hmm. coming from PHP and doing some time with Ruby and even... Well, I have some bones to pick with Python and, and Node. But, um, <laughs> yeah, like the one of the things that I think PHP did really well, especially with the Laravel push, was to use the .env. It's not necessarily a... That's a convention. Let's put it that way. And uh, it just makes it really simple to get your dev environment set up the way you want. And so when I did work with Python, there were some pa packages for that, and I thought that made things easier. And anyway, fast forward to working with Elixir, and we had these, these dev prod test configs. I'm like, that's fine. Mm -hmm. But really where it started rubbing me was, was having to deal with deployments because suddenly that configuration has to get packaged up and shipped running into like little snags for like, oh yeah, the, the app that's running on production isn't hundred percent the same as the app you're running locally because of whatever compilation things end up in there. <laughs> and, you know, just having like some DevOps people sort of like squawking about this, like, what the heck is this? I can't, what, which is which, what's actually loading, like all that stuff. You're like, you know what? You're right. That is confusing. And it, it made me think of like, Hey, there's, there's gotta be an easier way. Like YAML, I'm, I'm not drinking that Kool-Aid or Tommel or, or some of these other things that are out there. So I, I started poking around for the thing I knew, which was .env, and I, I thought that was an mm -hmm. adequate solution for the problem. So I poked around with a couple of existing packages, and they didn't quite do what I needed and either enforced conventions that were artificial or hard to follow. And in any, any case, ended up sort of poking around with this thing and, and having some fun with parsers along the way and ended up with a, a package that I think is, is pretty clean and, and pretty straightforward that just really simplified the configuration layer to, to the point where like all we have now is is just the uh, basically the runtime.exs, and then there is a sort of placeholder config.exs for any really global stuff. But that's like when the scales fell off. It's just like, oh, sweet, this is the same app in production 
as it is in local development, as it is in the testing environment, down to the MD5 signature. It's 100% the same. There's no like weird corners of the app that are untestable. I don't know. It just that that was like a good validation that yes, this was the right approach and this really made it simpler. Yeah, that makes sense. I primarily do Ruby and I like the .env approach. So what is the format then? Is it just variable colon value or variable equal value? It's equals. And I mm-hmm. was following the original .env Ruby right. gem. And yeah. it had some opinions in there that I didn't implement. Uh, specifically ones to run bash commands, which I get like when you look at it, you're like, okay, cool. This file format is very much descended from a bash file because mm-hmm. it optionally supports export in front of each of these variables. So if you're running, you're, you're editing your bash profile, you're going to have lots of exports, this, that, whatever setting your environment variables. Like, okay, I see that that's where it came from but I don't want to be running commands inside a config file. It's like one more thing to have to debug one more security vector that you got to like make sure is airtight. So I just didn't implement that particular thing. But I think more other than that, I think I followed the initial description pretty accurately in, in my, in my parser, but yeah, it's just, it's basically YAML with an equals key value. That's awesome. Yeah, I was reading your blog post about .env, and one of the things that really resonated with me is that you saying that there should be no mixed environment-specific configuration, and that is definitely taking it to like you know closer to you know the whole twelve-factor approach, and you know you know really like having less conditional logic in your app, and like really all the features are like controlled by the values of your environment, which is really, which definitely was a big uh, thing that resonated with me. Like I did not realize this package exists. I like use like dir env with just a runtime.exs, but this is really cool. What I really like about this is that it also does type casting or mm. at least to some extent. Do, can, do you want to talk a little bit uh, to that? Like how sophisticated is that? Because, you know, one of the problems is like one of the common ways of using environment is like a comma separated list, right? Mm-hmm, <laughs> like a, right. a list, like uh, like how how sophisticated it is, if not like what's the plan for that, the type system in .NV? Yeah, for your point, yeah, you have to typecast these things. So if we're not familiar with this, I'll just remind everybody that the system ENV comes in as a string, right? It's It doesn't know what that value represents. Like if you type in true, it's not going to think, ah, that's a Boolean. It's going to say, oh, that's a string, T-R-U-E, right? So it's important to do that typecasting so your app can get the data that it needs. So like one of the places we got burned with this was using Amnesia and any of these like maybe older Erlang-based things might need uh, character lists. So it has to be single quoted in your config file to define, for instance, the directory to which it's going to store stuff. Well, that's no no problem if you're using like the, the dev.exs, but suddenly if you're reading that from an environment variable, you're like, oh, snap, I need to convert this. So a lot of the packages out there had some form of doing that. It just, I realized like really pretty quickly, like, ah, oh, that's, that's a pretty important feature. And the other thing that really pushed me towards developing that was sort of a bad experience, or at least I felt like it wasn't a good trade-off using the configuration providers, right? Where like you're trying to read some other format, like say a, a TOML file or mm. even like out of like a parameter store, it's still like you have to do that conversion and it's it's not always simple. Like Elixir in particular has like this weird distinction between like a string, which is a UTF encoded binary versus a character list, which is just a, a list of code points unencoded. 
and also the difference between a, a keyword list and a map. That's just not every language has those distinctions. So it becomes like even more important to be able to like flip that switch and, and bring those values in from the environment in a sensible way. And I didn't feel like the, the configuration providers offered any sanity with that. Like uh, for instance, we tried to use Toml to bring stuff in and it, it had the same problems where it's like, oh yeah, here's this like comma separated list or something. And it's like, oh yeah, that's gonna come in as a, a keyword list, but we needed it as a map or like all those little subtleties. It just made sense to me like, hey, why not just open this up so you have an easy way to say, yeah, this is what the environment variable is coming in as. It needs to end up as this variable type. You know, are, are there plans for more of that? Like maybe, I'm not sure. I, th I think you can get into trouble like trying to over-engineer it. So I, so far I've steered clear of doing any aggregate type of data like a list or a, a map and instead just work on, on the, the single values you know, integers, booleans, atoms, that sort of thing. Very cool. I also really like how I'm just like briefly looking at the code as as you were explaining. You have really separated the env command and actually, uh, I forget the other command, but the env command that actually does the typecasting. So essentially you could not have a .env file and still use .env for you know, ensuring whatever environment you have is in the expected type, which is mm -hmm. uh, again, really cool. Oh, glad, thanks. Yeah, <laughs> I'd like to think that I do this long enough, I might find some better structures for applications along the way. So every now and then I implement something that, that makes more sense. I was just kind of curious about why you separate the difference between atom and module, because modules are just atoms, right? Is there a reason why? Yeah, the modules, they need to be prefaced with the elixir dot, right? So if you wanted to have in your configuration and supply your value as elixir dot, like whatever, some module name, okay, you could do that and just use the, the atom conversion. But that looks a little bit weird because if you're like copying and pasting, say like your, uh, I don't know, your HTTP client or something as a module name in your config, it's just going to read a little bit better to say, oh yeah, here's a module name and I just need to convert it as such rather than to remember in your config file to say, oh yeah, I need to do elixir dot and then the name of the module. It's You could get away with just the atom, but then you'd have to remember that last little bit and that just seemed like a little bit of friction that it was pretty easy to avoid yeah i like that okay. explicitness there too uh, it makes it more explicit that you're expecting that to be a module yeah i was also curious i did see you did like two existing atom which is great but you don't have something like two existing model or module to kind of protect yourself from this but i guess maybe this is less likely to happen if people keep adding stuff that doesn't actually exist right could possibly That's a really the, good uh, the idea table. I'd have to think through that. This is like where it really puts my Elixir knowledge to the test. Because like when, when the app is bootstrapping, does it have all the modules available, right? That's one. Like, is it guaranteed mm, to, yeah. to have compiled and would it see that that exists already? Or would it be in a case where like, hey, this is okay to bring in at runtime? Run there may be cases where you get into trouble with like an existing module. I don't know. But that's that's an interesting idea. Well, as far as I know, it should be that like when you have a compile time configuration, there you obviously don't have the modules available because the configurator is loaded before you compile your app. But mm -hmm. for runtime.ex, it should be fine, I guess. That makes sense. Yeah. But hey, you know, feature request. It's a beautiful thing. So one thing that I'm wondering about is that in some of the ways that I've wound up deploying things, I don't necessarily have like a prod. And right, I just mm -hmm. put it into environment variables. So yeah, how, how do you distinguish between the two when you're loading in 
essentially environment variables different from a file as opposed to the, the the system how do i distinguish between like knowing if i've loaded this thing up with like production yeah that- so if i'm in production i, I don't really want to have a separate case for that right, right. i just want to say right hey give me the the magic string or whatever mm-hmm. so my thinking on this was maybe a little bit redolent of, of like julian assange or something saying like okay the best way to keep a secret is not to have it right mm-hmm. so like in my mind, it made a lot of sense just thinking of the app as the app, and it doesn't know or care, hey, is this like a 90 rule of nines, whatever database that's always up, or, or is it just like your local Docker thing? Like the app doesn't really know or care, right? That's all on you. So if you give it a database URL that it can work with, that's all it needs. So it's really up to you as the developer to, to know what to feed your app. And if you mm-hmm. are like, like me, I'd, I'd rather not know production credentials. Right, like if I'm having to log into production, usually that's it's just dicier, right? There's there's risk associated with that. Right. I might screw something up. I could be liable for something. As a as a freelancer, that was always like in my contracts, like, hey, I don't do do not give me like access to this stuff unless I need access to that, because then suddenly I, I could be involved in, in more than I want to get involved with. So in in that sense, it, the way I was thinking about it was like, hey, the the whole adjective of like prod, dev, test that really shouldn't describe a file so much as it should describe a single variable. Like, oh, this is the production database URL. This is the Mm -hmm. test HTTP client or something like this. Now, granted, you might end up having separate ENB files that you sort of get fed in and grouped uh, other values accordingly. But uh, just conceptually, it's like, look, the app has a contract with the environment. It needs to have these particular environment variable set in order to operate and it's up to you to provide things that are sensible and for me that's worked pretty well and and also it's like okay for the devops guys like yeah cool they it's the same contract for them it's just they have their fingers on the uh the real the sensitive api the real api keys the real database url all that sort of thing makes sense to me if i have a dot end file and environment variables who wins by default it will defer to a defined uh, system ENB. So for okay. instance, it's pretty common to like spin up a, or run a bash script and, and you'd set the, the ENB in line, like you would do like X or a URL equals XYZ and then bash my script.sh or something, right? You'd set that in line. So if you're doing it that way, by default, it's going to obey that. Say, oh, that environment variable already exists. I'm going to defer to that. I'm not going to attempt to overwrite it. But you can overwrite that. There's an option to overwrite whatever's there. Honestly, I haven't had a need to use that, but you know, I don't know everybody's circumstance. So you know, maybe someone will point out a, the error of my ways or, or come up with an improvement <laughs> on that. I actually do like the idea of being able to tell whether you loaded an environment through the .env versus other source. Because, I mean, if that's the case, .env could be you know like one place where one source of truth of like, what environment variables your app needs to run. It's like like almost self-documented if you're storing that in .env, all the references to the env bang uh, function. Have you thought of something like that? Yeah. I mean, that's, I, I try to think through like, okay, how do you, how do you track that? I, with the caveat that like, I didn't want to be, I didn't want to write something that's too loud or like try to log everything. There's some information there, but maybe you have good recommendations on, on a way to do that. But at the end of the day, the, the contract is with the environment. So like if you are going right. to like Heroku or something where like you have a dashboard and you set those 
uh, environment variables, cool. You don't need a, a dot file anywhere to parse. It's just going to say, oh, I got what I need. I'm on my way. Right. That that was a valid use case for for thinking this through. Mm, right. So, are you using .env in production in any of the, your projects? Yeah, yeah. It has been battle tested for a little while now, and it you know, it helps solve the problem that we were having, where it was just like confusion as far as like which which file was was which, and and the whole like oily rag problem of like, oops, this value was set on the build machine or set on production, but not on the build machine. So when it got built like that that particular value never ended up the way that you thought. So it has, uh, yeah, the use of this like refactoring our apps to, to use that has been a boon because then we found it like, oops, we forgot a couple of things in our deployment process where we were getting a value maybe at an unexpected time and just ended up in a place where it wasn't, it didn't have what it needed. So yeah, we, we rewrote our configuration layer to rely on this. And uh, so far, so good. It's been uh, going for a month or so now. But in production, how do you then manage your, like, how do you manage the production file? Because I don't want to put like my AWS keys or something in there, right? In, right. in plane and then check it in. So, yeah. So I think there's room to grow on this one because like if the box is being brought up and those values are being set via a service, I, I think maybe that's where the security is. If it's defined when that service comes up, I can't as a regular user like SSH into the box and just go echo you know, AWS key or something and see what that value is. But mm -hmm. when the service starts, that does get declared for that particular process. So I think that's the trick. But as soon as you have IEX access, you're, you're going to be able to peep that stuff anyway. So right. security is a tough one, right? Because it's always these, these trade-offs. So like, is that the right solution for everybody? And clearly not, but like, is that viable for some cases? Yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe you have uh, better ways of approaching that. But in most of these, I have, these types of situations, I've found that there's like a hole or like maybe it's an acceptable risk or a trade-off just to kind of make things easier for everybody, but not like leave your pants too far around your ankles. Yeah, I mean, I've I've seen, so Ruby on Rails is the one that I'm most familiar with that has like a secrets file. Mm -hmm. that's encrypted and if you lose your key <laughs> yeah <laughs> all that info is gone right so you don't check in your master key but then you can check in your secrets file so then you just you're passing around essentially a different thing mm -hmm. but yeah it's the same deal right you said as soon as you have iex access it's the same thing right you know you open up the rails console and you say hey what's this environment variable and it's going to say your database password is this right then yeah. i don't know that there's a good way around that and i don't think any system really has one yeah, I haven't seen one either. Like I've worked in a couple industries, like one e-commerce e for a long time where like PCI compliance was big. So like, yeah, you, you don't want any access to a production server because like, why would you mm -hmm. be on the hook for like getting people's <laughs> transaction data? And then also in, in, you know, medical areas where like HIPAA data is flying around, like also like, nope, that's, that's PPI. Yeah. I don't want to see that. So like, okay, cool. I'm, I'm actually kind of relieved to be working in a field like we don't have like super duper sensitive stuff so that like, it's a lot easier to get on there and get your fingers on on the machine and kind of get a pulse of what's going on and could we do that responsibly with like some other industry where there may have been more sensitive data like arguably yes but it's always that question of is it possible to do x y and z so i don't know hopefully you're making a tool that's useful enough to like hit something useful for different use cases and including ones that maybe you as the author didn't think of. So 
you know, if it can do all those things, great. If it can be used in a responsible way that's helpful to people, then, you know, that's that's kind of my yardstick of, of building a good tool. That makes sense. But as for your production environment stuff, you're just sticking it in a file and basically you put it in your system either at build time or at runtime. Yeah. In our case, we have a, a .env file, whatever it's called, that mm-hmm. gets written by the deployment process and it intentionally omits the super sensitive data. So like if you need to debug something on a production machine, you could look at the .env file and say, okay, this is how it was configured. You can like change the logging level or, or um, you know, things like that. And you have like some control over it, but unless you really go looking for it, you're not gonna come across like super sensitive data. And to the credit of the DevOps people, like even if you had that, it's so restricted to the particular machine that you know, you as an individual outside that network with no other way to get on it, like, what are you going to really do with that information right. anyway? It, it's pretty, like, we, we've kind of, like, tried to calculate the blast radius of any of this stuff leaking. And, you know, I think we've landed on a pretty good balance there as far as, you know, what what keeps us productive and keeps the, the stack safe. I think this is, like, actually a pretty good solution, like, being able to blacklist certain things from being written in .env while still keeping it configurable is actually, yeah, actually pretty good. <laughs> I mean, usually I was going to say the database uh, credentials and stuff, like, I mean, yeah, you cannot really control that. I mean, maybe you can do that at the network layer with like firewalls and like uh, IP whitelist and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But I mean, yeah, you definitely need to get a step further but by not even writing it to the dot and yet loading it in the app. That's, I think, very cool. Yeah. I, I keep thinking like there's, it's not like the end of the, of the line there. I feel like there's probably plenty of room for improvements. Like I just, we haven't had to dig further. It's so... I haven't poked at it more, but like, okay, it might be nice to be able to like have that syntax for local stuff, but still have a way to like pull it out of a parameter store somehow, like something. But I really wanted to get away from like having, oh, this is code that only runs in production. And I don't know how many times you guys have done that, but I've definitely had times where like I pushed code out and it worked fine locally, but then, oh yeah, there's this slight little conditional that's slightly different on production. And suddenly <laughs> you snag on something and that stinks because it's like, man, I like testing and like having that peace of mind. And if, if I could avoid that uh, for everything, I would. You know, there are I've learned that there are a few things that you actually do want to have different in the production machine, right? Like, like Elixir gives us this way to like filter out the logging statements because every millisecond can matter, right? So if you did that, like it will compile down and like physically remove those those logging statements that are below a certain threshold and remove them from the built artifact. It's like, well, cool. In that case, you can have like a, a log level in your .env file to config at runtime, but it's not going to do you any good if those statements have been removed. Like, okay, good to know. I didn't realize like how thorough you can play around with this until I was digging in the weeds on this, but it, it's good to know that that exists. It's just, I haven't been on something that's been running so red hot that that, that mattered. Like it was definitely a better trade-off to be able to have the logging still there and be able to turn it on when we hit a snag rather than be like, oh, sorry, this is the production build. Those logging statements have been pulled out. This is one example. Right. But have you come across any other scenarios where you actually went back and configured something at compile time? Because I mean, that, that was where we were at the beginning, right? Like runtime versus compile time. Yeah, honestly not. Honestly not. I was actually surprised because it was just sort of like, when I started getting frustrated with this and like kind of like hearing where our DevOps guy was coming from on this, I was like, oh yeah, that is annoying. Like, well, I was like, well, let's, let's, you know, hit the pedal to the metal. Like, so let's see where this goes. And I started seeing like 
how much I could pull out of the config.exs, like delete all those environment specific configs. And I was really surprised. Like, I think I could have pulled out like almost everything. There may have been like one or two lines that had like some kernel something or other in them, but pretty much everything worked at runtime. And I was surprised because so much stuff had been in the environment specific files prior to that. It just like they'd been there for so long. I was like, oh, that's probably normal. And really, it doesn't have to be that way. So I don't know. It, it, again, it, it may not be the, the best solution for everybody, but it, I was personally very surprised at like how lightweight that actual config.exs could be. It's like a ghost town and like everything, all the actions in the runtime.exs now. I must say I'm not tempted to, to go look at our, our various existing services, like see how, how much I can pull out there. I mean, we do some, we have one application which does some clustering and I'm like, I sincerely don't know if that's something which needs to be configured in the configuration and the compile time config. No idea, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, clustering is a good one because you can't just, you can enable it or disable it, but it's not like suddenly you're going to flip an END value and suddenly another node is going to come up. You know, unless unless you've got some like awesome bootstrap uh, bootstrapping script that's going to bring that up, but uh, yeah, it starts to bleed over into infrastructure a little bit there, and, and maybe the, the usefulness isn't as great. Hey, folks! If you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv/premium. So what was it like writing the parser? Actually, I want to ask one more question about the the values before I ask you that. And that is, and I'm try, I, I, as I thought of the question, I can't think of a scenario where you would want this, but can you like in, insert dynamic uh, values into the .env at all? Or is that not really a thing? No, I mean, really the, those files get read at runtime and specifically when the application is starting, right? Okay. So it's not like it keeps on referring back to that file. You know, I know some some build tools are generating those like, you know, Puppet or Terraform or something might be generating those files and then it consumes them. But like, what, you know, what are you going to do if it generates it? After, like, it's not looking at that file yeah. after the fact. So sort of like that ship has sailed. Now, it is possible that you have your reading environment variables elsewhere in your code, but that could just be weird. Like, to me, that's a smell if, if that, you got like a system get env somewhere else other than in your config files, but you know technically I guess that's possible. Yeah, I was thinking like database URLs or something like that, but yeah, I mean you just establish the connection when you boot up, and yeah, yeah, makes sense. So, where what was it like writing this parser? You know what what worked right off the bat? What were the challenges? That is a good question. I've I've kind of been geeking out on parsers recently. Like an Elixir is like so much fun to write stuff like that like it, it's just it's such a beautiful expressive way to, to deal with a string of characters and i think had i written this type of thing maybe even just a few years ago i probably would have gone the regular expression route and try to pull stuff out but i was like you know what like i, I tried writing a like a front-end uh, template language i did a parser for that and it was pretty cool and then what else? I feel like I did something else recently where I, I wrote a parser for something. I, I did another one too that just to, to like riff on the question. Like, do you guys know what a figlet is? Nope, sorry. Nope. No. <laughs> this is so geeky, but like I found I've always been fascinated with like the ASCII art. You know, like if you've seen like there's okay. a, there's like an ASCII art animated Star Wars, and it's just like all like you know, ASCII characters rendering these images, and it, you know, if like you squint, you can see Darth Vader or whatever. 
But uh, do you, so, so do you play Dwarf Fortress in your in your free time? <laughs> no, but I I always love these these ASCII art. So I I found a site where like you could type in some text and it would like show different fonts and it would like render it in this ASCII text. I was like, that's so cool. And I wanted to do something like that in Elixir. And so I was reading through the original documentation. It's like, man, it's like finding something like in the lunar module or something like, oh my God, like these guys use slide rulers to like send something to the moon. But anyway, like this, this like old, old for internet standard, this is probably like from the nineties, but they had devised this file format to encode characters so like it had a way of like okay each character has so many lines this is like the the glyph that defines the end of the line and so you could parse these files and get a, an ascii map right so you're like oh this is a uh, ascii whatever 24 that maps to whatever letter a or whatever it is right and so i wrote a parser for that that kind of took a different approach but it, it just was fun to do that and like pull it in and have elixir be able to, to like tear apart this file and very, I wrote that at the same time I was, I was playing around with this .env parser. You know, I looked, again, I was looking at some of the other solutions that are out there and they were doing the regular expression route, which is great. I love regular expressions, but also I have to recognize that they are a pain to debug. Like, like I don't feel like you're earning extra points by coming up with some crazy complex regular expression that does what you want. But as soon as there's a problem, you're like, oh dear Lord, like which of these like things do I need to tweak to get that other character? Like that's a nightmare. So the parsing, for one, I think it's more fun, but I also think it's it's just an easier thing to flow through. So when I approached this, I was like, I'm not gonna just hammer on these regular expressions overly much. I wanna just be able to read these things uh, character by character and come up with like a sensible way to grab those values. Any reason you didn't think of using like JSON or something instead? Oh yeah, I mean you could. I'm not against it. The the thing with JSON is like how how would you? Uh, I mean, one you you'd have to choose your JSON decoder. Mm-hmm. So like immediately, like suddenly you'd, you'd have to have a hole in your app for that. Like oh, we'll just configure it and like okay, you could do that. But what? How is that system ENV going to come in? Like if you're deploying to like Heroku or something, are you going to paste that JSON? value as a string inside the value for your your env like you could do that it's a little bit weird but i didn't want to have dependencies i didn't want to Mm. have to like use somebody else's stuff to bootstrap the app that makes sense i'm just curious how do you test a parser you feed it different values it's actually fairly straightforward you just you can define a, a series of uh fixtures right in this case they would be like sample files that you expect to resolve one way or another or throw an error or whatever it is so it actually, the assertions are, are pretty straightforward. I guess that makes sense. Yeah, it's a lot easier to test that than it is like an HTTP request or something that's doing something complicated. Like you don't even need to use mocks or anything else. You're just like, look, here's the file, chew on it, and this is what it should spit back out. Like, did it? Cool. On to the next one, right? Or like this one should have an error. This one should skip that value. This one should skip comments. This one should interpolate a value, like whatever it is. Like it, it actually, it laid itself out pretty well. And it, if I remember correctly, I think I grabbed, I think I grabbed some of the files from the original Ruby and threw those into my test fixtures just to make sure I was getting the same stuff. I could have axed that at some point, but my memory is, is a little bit hazy, but I feel like that's something I did. So do you have any plans? Like where do you want to go with that envy or do you consider it like complete at this point? Is there anything you'd like to do? I mean, I'm always open to input on it, right? Like, again, I feel like the best tool is it's not ever a final thing. There's always like an evolution. And so if there's, if there's something that it should have or should do differently, like, you know, that's what pull requests are for. Like it, 
it, it opens it up and makes it useful to everybody. Like, I, I don't want to like just stick my stake in the ground and say, you know, this is the end of things, like it, whatever. Like it's, it's not about me. It's more like what, what's useful for people using that as a tool. So I just released a, a couple smaller fixes to it to like clean up the, some of the error messaging and, and tighten down the interface a little bit, but it, it was fairly minor tweaks. One thing that I don't know if it'd be useful, but I, I was thinking like, would it make sense to have like a merge command as distinct from this sourcing? Because the source function also sets the system environment variables so that the app can read those, right? I don't know if it makes sense just to say like, yeah, you can do this without a side effect. You could just like read a series of, of optional files and end up with the merged map of all those files. Like initially I thought that would be cool, but then as I went through using it, I actually didn't have a use case for it, but that was something I'd originally thought of. But I don't know. I mean, if you guys have suggestions or anyone else for that matter, like I'm, I'm open to it. It's, it's, that's the beauty of open source is like make it useful for as many people as possible. You know, what I could see here is like something which Adi also mentioned. Um, like, I mean, as of right now, it obviously only supports the .env format, but I mean, that, that could be made pluggable, right? That you say, okay, this is like a behavior and you give it like the, the file mm. contents and then it just spits out, like, right? Like an okay tuple with like a map. Then you could, for example, if you, if you're whatever strikes you, your fancy, then you could say, okay, I want to do this with Tommel because I find Tommel so insanely awesome. My name is Tom and I, I want to do that. So who, who knows? That's uh, something yeah. which, I, which I could see. But I mean, as, as of right now, I understand what, where you're coming from. Where you say, okay, this is, uh, this is in a good place. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's, it's in a very good place. So I was trying to remember how I had structured this, but I, I believe I, I set it up as a behavior with a callback with the thought that, yeah, you know, somebody might have, might want to use a different parser for it, right? And, and some of that's just like, I think good code craft, if you can do that correctly, and I'm not saying I did this correctly, but if, if you don't like inject your own opinions into how things should be done, I feel like that makes for stronger, more useful software. It's just like, well, if I don't need to solve that problem, I won't. But I, I feel, yeah, yeah, I think there is a, you can inject a parser as an option. So if you have a different module that's having a different format, or even like maybe that's the interface with like a parameter store, it's like, sure, you could write your own parsing module that interfaced with that parameter store and it could read all the values in the same way. That's awesome. And so how, how are you storing like the results of like sourcing the files? I mean, as far as I understood, um, they, they also get put into the environment, assuming they are not yet set. Is that right? Or so you just read from the environment or, or is like, do you put them into, I don't know, like an ETS table or something? No, I didn't use ETS for this. I just, I literally, you supplied a list of files and it parses each one and it merges those, right? So after it's progressed through all those files, which you can configure that if they're optional or if they need to be there, whatever the requirements are, but it gets a list of those and then it has a side effect. Again, it's an option you can set, but the side effect by default is to do system.putenv. So it's going to take all the accumulated values, which is a map, and then it's going to set those into the system env. That's also very good design, actually. I was going to ask, like, can you change what you're doing with that? Because early on, I mentioned it'd be nice if I could like have a registry where I see all the environments that are set through .env. And I could be like, side effect is not just system.putenv, it is agent.update. 
add right. this to the agent and then do system output and and I can store all the updates and that's again a sign of good design. Oh well, I hope so. I now that I'm thinking about. It, I think I did it that way because there was an article. I think, man, I don't know if it was Dockyard or or one of these guys that one of these companies that has an Elixir shop, and, and they had an uh, an article about doing configuration. And there was some other plugin, some other package that they used, whose name is slipping my mind right now. But in their example, like they're in their application.ex and they're like, cool, right there before they're declaring all the children modules that, that get um, linked to the, to the running process. They're like reading in the config right there. And then they're passing along that config down to each module. So... Like, that's cool. In the real world, I haven't seen a whole lot of modules that accepted everything they needed to know directly from that start link or init function. But like, in theory, that looks pretty cool. In reality, we couldn't quite get that to work. But to your point, like, yeah, you might want a different side effect. Like, you might be able to like, cool, read these files and then do with these values, whatever you want. Like, you don't have to set the system environment variables if that's not what you're up to. Totally. You can put them in the database. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Very cool. Yeah, well, it seems like a very reasonable default. And there might be scenarios where you might want to put it in like as an ETS table or like a persistent term or something like that. But right. But I, I mean, yeah, the default of putting it into a system environment is certainly reasonable. Yeah, that's that's that was my take so far. But if you've got other examples, other use cases, you know, like hey, it's like that example of like the the architect or whatever the story is who built like UC Berkeley or something where like he didn't put the sidewalks in. Do you guys remember this? Like he builds the school and they're like, yeah, where are the sidewalks? He's like, just wait. And then like they have a semester of classes or something. And he's like, okay, see where all the, the paths are, where all the students walk. That's where your sidewalks are, right? If you can like let it run for a while and kind of see what the needs are and then come back in and, and like mm -hmm. and meet that. I feel like that kind of leaves the door open to whatever changes might be beneficial. So Hopefully there's room for that in, in a design. And I hope that this meets that kind of expectation. Very cool. Yeah, I'm definitely going to try this out on my side project. I At my company, we have another open source uh, package like this, which does it very, which is very similar. I actually prefer what you have over here. So definitely going to give it a try. Nice. Yeah, I'm rooting for you. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Awesome. Well, if there's nothing else, I'm going to start pushing us toward picks because, yeah, I've got a couple of things I've got to take care of. And anyway, is there anything else to really go over with this? With uh, no, I, I have one more, one last thing. If you, oh, if go you for it. Would entertain me. Like, oh, this is like a bit tangential, but I mean, initially when like Elixir 1.11 landed and like runtime.ex was uh, added, I had this idea that maybe we the default for config the config file uh, for compile time, the name should change because currently it's called the config.ex. And I was thinking, okay, we have now runtime.ex. Maybe this should be called compile time.ex because I mean, yeah. as I said, I've read, this is a lot of confusion. I mean, I remember before we had runtime.ex and like this was like the number one pain point in Elixir, like with, with random uh, compile time configuration. So I'd like to hear a thought on that. Yeah, 100%. I mean, one of my uh, old man sayings is like, coding is easy, communication is hard. Right. So if you can reduce friction by using a carefully chosen word or adjective that better communicates the purpose, that's a win. So like, yeah, to your point, config.exs, that says nothing about compile time. If, if you were unfamiliar and you looked at that, you wouldn't know that. You wouldn't assume that. So that if you said compile, 
compile time or something that was more evocative, for sure, that would help reduce the confusion. So, yeah, I would support a change like that. Yeah, cool. So yeah, maybe, maybe you should open a PR to, to Elixir Core and, and see, <laughs> see, see what happens. <laughs> yeah, maybe. You know, say has been very, and the people working on it have been very um, responsive on, on things like that. So my guess is they probably already thought of some things like that. Maybe they're already like, working on something. I want a dinnertime.esx. <laughs> you hungry, Charles? Yeah, a little. All right. It's good to be hungry. Hey, folks. I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit. And you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. All right, let's 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 do some picks. Alan, do you want to start us off with picks? Yeah, recently I've been trying to get into Rust a little bit more because I do have some projects which actually require quite a bit of performance Elixir can perform most of the stuff I need to do, but there is some things which, yeah, just need a little bit more power sometimes. And sometimes Elixir is not the best at everything, right? So yeah, I've been playing around with, there's a book called Rust Web Development that I've been playing around with. I think it's actually really, really great. So if you're interested ever using Rust for web development for some surfaces or something, this book is really, really great, uh, really fantastic. And the other one is I'm still going through concurrent uh, data services in Elixir. So I don't know if you guys saw that one before. I think I might have picked it before in the past, but I went through the first couple of chapters, thought it was great, had to put it down, came back to it. And now I'm like really blown away with the amount of information I'm getting from it. So that's really some great picks for me. Awesome. Sasha. Yes, no, I actually I had one pick, but now that Alan mentioned Rust, I want to also pitch something. Um, so I, I've been working for a book called Hands on Rust, and that's not about web development, but that's about learning Rust through building a 2D game. And that's pretty neat because when I initially saw Rust, I was like, okay, this seems like something pretty cool, pretty well suited to building games with. But I, I don't want to dig into all of this myself because of time. And so I was pretty pretty happy when, when this book finally landed. And it's like kind of fun you to pick with this round-based uh, dungeon crawler thing. And it's, it's pretty cool because it teaches the game building basics, it teaches the Rust basics. So if web development of Rust is not your jive, maybe game development of Rust is your jive. So I guess Rust is for everybody. A second pick, which is related to the episode today, is a tool from Mozilla, which is called SOPS. Because, I mean, we also talk about how to keep secrets safe. And that thing, basically, what it does, it encrypts the files by using not a, the default master key scenario, but more of cloud-based key scenario. So basically you have your AWS credentials, for example, on your machine, and then the key only lives in like an AWS service. I don't remember the name of it. And so you don't have to deal with a scenario of, um, okay, what happens when like the keys get leaked, right? Um, because they literally only ever live in AWS. Okay, if AWS gets breached, you're fucked, but you 
have basically then the scenario where you can keep your secrets on your repository, they are encrypted, and um, it keeps takes care of all this nitty-gritty key handling and stuff. So maybe that's something people want to look into if they come across a scenario where they have more strict security requirements. Cool. Adi, do you have some picks? Yeah, I have a couple. First one is another job opening at a company called Huntress Labs. They are like cybersecurity company for like, they call it like cybersecurity with a 99%. They're like more less reliant on machine learning and they have like actual humans uh, looking at like incidents and uh, reacting to that. Uh, it's really cool. And they're hiring for like uh, a senior lead engineer. So check them out. Uh, it sounds like a very good place to work. And another one is I've been doing a lot of talks lately and doing like slides is like the worst part about giving talks. And uh, I found this really cool tool which converts Markdown into very configurable, you know, set of slides uh, in, in form of HTML, uh, which can be used very easily. It's called Marpit. Again, both of these links will be in the description. Nice. I'm going to jump in with a few uh, picks here. One thing that I've been playing with lately, and I'm I'm trying to find out if it actually runs Elixir in Phoenix, but I just deployed a Rails app to it. It's the DigitalOcean app platform. And anyway, it's it's been terrific. You if you have a Docker file in your in your repository, then it'll actually just run your Docker file. So you can deploy that way. But it's been really handy just to to not have to worry about some of the stuff that you normally have to worry about when you deploy. It's kind of like a Heroku or a, some of the other ones that are like that, right? Where you you push stuff to your Git repo and then it deploys for you. And all I had to do was give it access to my uh, Git repo on GitHub. So I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty happy with it and uh, excited to see where that all heads. So uh, I'm going to pick that the DigitalOcean app platform. And then the other pick that I have I, I've I've signed up for another marathon. <laughs> I missed the last one because I was sick. They deferred my registration. I think I talked about that already. But I decided to just gear up for a marathon that I've already run. It's going to be in October. And as I was doing that, I went back on Training Peaks, which is where I kind of put in the training program that I run. And anyway, I, I plugged everything in and got a training plan and I'm off to the races. So I'm pretty happy with that. So I'm going to pick trainingpeaks.com as well. Which marathon are you running? St. George. Cool. In Utah. Yep. Awesome. I just signed up for one in October as well. So I got to check out this pick you. You're about to post. Yeah. Yeah. It's cheaper than hiring a coach. You have to hold yourself accountable, but. Yeah, that's the hard part. Yeah, but yeah, just get out and do the runs. I know it, man. I should get out right now. Yeah. Which which marathon are you going to run? We're in Maine right now, so it's the uh, Mount Desert Isle Marathon in October, okay. which I've never run before, but it's supposed to be beautiful. I'm coming off a sprained knee, so I'm trying to like ease into it a little oh, bit. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's just it's just good to have a break from the screen time and just get out there and, and sort of meditate on your feet a bit. Yeah. Yeah. I joined a swim team that swims Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And so I do my runs Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. I'm also going to get my bike adjusted and start getting into cycling. I really want to do an Ironman. So that's an out there goal. So yeah, cool stuff. Awesome. Uh, Good luck. Yeah. Thanks. Do you have some picks, some things you want to shout out about? Oh man, I did not prepare picks. Is there a book or a TV show or a technology that you think everybody should know about? That is a good question. I'm not good on the spot. Let's see. Ted Lasso has been covered. Rust, my curiosity is peaked. It's been on my list for a while. One thing that I think may deserve a little bit more 
discussion and maybe you guys have some ideas is I've been thinking as a developer, like what can I do with my skills to like help sort of raise the bar of, of humanity or like where can I do the most good? And I know there is a, a website called Ruby for Good. And I know there was some noise in the Elixir forums about like Elixir for Good, this idea of like developers assisting different nonprofit type of organizations or charities and, and trying to develop and help them out with technological needs. It's maybe a little bit more complex of a topic that probably merits its own discussion. But um, I kind of wanted to throw that out there. Like, does does anybody have recommendations or organizations where one might be able to focus and bring together their own desires and, and help do the most good for the world? That's a great yeah. idea. I'm, I I don't, unfortunately, don't know any resources for Nixa for that. I don't either, but it's, I think it's good to raise the raise the, the point maybe uh, somebody has some ideas about it and uh maybe uh the next job can be doing something maybe more for for others that's, that's kind of where my, my mindset is is like well where can i be doing the most good that's awesome that is interesting and yeah i love the idea of going out and contributing where you think you can lift things that matter yeah yeah because development is interesting in that it's the plumbing is kind of the same regardless if you're doing mm -hmm. like whatever gerrymandering or like whatever curing cancer it's like you might be normalizing database records or you know it's kind of the same plumbing so like where can you actually be doing something that makes a, a positive impact yep yep absolutely well if people want to connect with you online everett where do they find you um i'm sort of off social media just for my own sanity it just it's sort of too much stress and bad vibes <laughs> but i do have a linkedin yeah. profile Everett Griffiths. You can find me there. I try to keep everything up there as just professional relations and, you know, try to stay away from the weird former co-workers who seem to have gone off the deep end. So yeah, I'm, I'm welcome to, I welcome invites there and, and happy to continue discussion on LinkedIn. All right. Good deal. Well, we're going to go ahead and wrap up here, but uh, thanks for coming and chatting with us. Thank you very much for the invite. It was a pleasure chatting with all of you. All right, folks. Until next time, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.